Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold part of that short sentence. It is going to be a wonderful hour. Bev Canaris is in studio. We're going to um, catch up with her in just a minute. And then uh, Pastor Chris Palmer will be here as well in the second half of the hour to talk about Greek. But today with Bev, I want to talk about something that uh, one of the seven things that God hates, and that is a lying tongue. A lying tongue is one that will be speaking falsehood knowingly and willingly with the intention to deceive others. And we all know Satan is the father of lies, and we're going to talk all about lying today. Bev is a uh, Bible study fellowship teacher for a teaching leader for 35 years, and now she is um, retired from that, but she still loves to teach and encourage and mentor, and she's here in studio. Welcome, Bev. Thanks, Bill. Glad to be here. This is a difficult subject. Everyone, I think, at some point has told a lie. Well, we are all guilty, mm-hmm. no doubt about it. We're all guilty. But I do think we need to be reminded not to lie and why we shouldn't lie and how do we overcome that tendency in all of us to want to lie. Um, Bill, can you remember back to a time when you were lied to? How did it make you feel? Um, well, I didn't like it. No. No, I didn't like it at all. No, no. We feel betrayed. It also damages our self-worth because that person didn't value us enough to give us the truth. It, it creates sadness. It creates grief. And it can even be a break in relationship or a distancing. When you know someone has lied to you, there is a a little bit of a wall that goes up there. And if it's perpetual lying, there's a very big wall that goes up. Listen to this quote from Augustine, who was an early church father from his book, Confessions. I have had experience of many who wish to deceive, but not one who wished to be deceived. So in other words... If you don't want others lying to you, don't lie to others. Um, first of all, let's start to the base, the basic thing here. What is to, truth? Let's define it. Today, uh, it's, it's kind of like Pilate in, when Jesus was in front of him. What is truth? How, what makes a lie if we don't know what is true? See the dilemma there? And the more we um, water down what is truth the less likely anybody's going to feel any conviction about lying. I really feel like truth has been hijacked. Now it's my truth, your truth. I have to act according to my truth. And that just lets you off of obeying God, number one, but really listening and taking seriously the truth of his word. But listen to this uh, quote that I read, defining truth. Truth is an accurate definition of the facts, especially truth in conformity to God's standards as revealed in his word. God is truth, and he always speaks the truth. Falsehood or lying is any deliberate misrepresentation of facts. And that's very similar to where you started with your definition, Bill. So it's my opinion, personal opinion, that lying in our culture today is no longer a moral issue of importance. Hmm. 
lying, I feel, is rampant. And with lying, this rampant, we are going to have a hard time in a free society where we count on people telling us the truth. How can you do business transactions? How can you uh, do relationships? How can you have uh, life run when it's not run on that we trust people, that we Mm -hmm. value, that they're going to tell us the truth? Who is telling the truth these days? I think I've never, well, since I've been alive, I've never had a time in my life where so many people question the truth of everything because we've been lied to so much. Uh, And we have such little opinion of what truth is and respect for that truth, especially God's truth. I think we question more today than ever truth, and that's for good reasons, really good reasons. You know, we don't only see this in the culture generally, but we also see it in the churches. Did you know churches tell people lies? 2 Timothy 4.3 says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. So what are some examples of how churches can lie? Well, God is love. God is one-dimensional. He's love. And you know, love is love. Mm-hmm. Hell is fiction. It's just metaphorical. Satan is a, is a character, an epitome of evil, but not a real character. Um, Christ is God. He's our God. But, you know, for others, their God is Buddha and all the other religious leaders. They're just as valid as ours is in Christ. Mm-hmm. That's a lie. Yes, it is. They can't all be true. Or the Bible is only partly meaningful for today. In other words, it's the picking and the choosing. Well, you know, let's not believe this, but here, this is so nice. Uh, This sounds so good. How about this one? We're all going to heaven. God accepts all. Universalism. That's not Christianity. No. Or God wants you to be happy and rich, prosperous, right? Oh, what okay. Tell God me more want? about that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that can't say that lie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know what he wants us to be, Bill? Now let me tell you the truth. Holy. Holy and obedient, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's try to think of some examples in the Bible of people who lied. Remember, the examples in the Bible are sometimes there. It's, it's historical account. It's not meant to be followed. We're not supposed to follow and suit, especially on these negative things when God has clearly defined that we're not to lie. So how many can we think of? Let's start back in the Garden of Eden. Who told the first lie? Satan. Mm-hmm. You surely will not die. You're not going to die. No. How about Abraham? About his wife being his sister. Yeah. And then his son, Isaac, He saw what daddy did, and he did it himself, Mm -hmm. and he lied about his wife as well. Said he was sister, just to protect their own skin, (laughs) as you might say. Sarah, wonderful Sarah, Abraham's wife. Um, The angels confronted her. Why did you laugh when we said you were going to have a son? And she said, I didn't laugh. And the angel said after she said that, oh, but you did. She was really caught, busted. And then we have Jacob. He was known as the deceiver. Under the encouragement of his mother, Rebecca, she uh, and Jacob lied to their father, Isaac, so that Jacob could get the blessing. He dressed up like his brother and told his dad that 
he was actually Esau when it was indeed Jacob. So there's some lying going on. How about Peter? No, I don't know Jesus in the garden, right? Mm-hmm. I, don't, I, I don't know him standing around the fire three times. Then we have Ananias and Sapphira in the uh, New Testament, in the book of Acts, where they were asked, how much did you get for your land that you sold? Because they were going to, you know, look really good in front of everybody, giving all this money to the church. And they lied about it. And both of them ended up six feet under. A lot of examples. And I'm sure you could think of more if we sat here long enough and thought about it. Um, But today... We don't want to just look back in the Bible. It's easy to point our finger at others. Uh, we want to make this personal and talk about how our own natural tendency very often is to lie. So let's start with what Scripture says about lying. It is one of the Ten Commandments. The Ninth Commandment is, You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You know, we can lie by spreading other people's lies and so harming others. You know, in church, if we've got an issue with the person, we are to go to that person, according to Matthew 18. We don't go around and start sharing it with other people. You you go to the source, the person you have the question about. You don't spread these things around because it might be false and you might be part of the line. We're also told in Scripture that God the Father does not lie. Boom, there it is. God does not lie. Christ does. It is said that there was nothing false in him. And then the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. The Bible, God's Word, is truth because God is truth. When we belong to God through faith in Christ, we are to display the qualities of Christ. And he was truthful. Ephesians 4.15 says, Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So what this is really saying is that we're to be people who speak the truth in love. I love that. (laughs) Speak the truth in love. You see, what we can do, we can beat people up with truth. We We can kill them with truth as well. But we're to speak it and we're to speak it in love. And we're to do so increasingly as we grow in our maturity to be like Christ. We don't want to beat people with the truth, but we do speak it. We do speak truth with love. Now, on the other hand, when we practice lying, we display the quality of who? Satan, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. John eight forty four. Jesus is condemning the religious leaders here when he, when he said, You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for his is a liar and the father of lies. Them are some pretty strong words. Why they ever. Aren't they? Mm -hmm. So to be described as a murderer and the next category, awful category, a liar. We certainly don't want to be affiliated with that. Proverbs tells us that God hates lying lips, as you started out with. A false witness will not go unpunished, and whoever pours out lies will not go free. I thought that was an interesting way to put it, because when you start lying, you're trapped. You're very often, you're trapped in your lies, and it leads to more lying. And another place it says, a lying tongue hates those it hurts. So when you lie to someone, it is a form of hating that person. 
And another part of that same verse says, a flattering mouth works ruin. You know, you wouldn't think flattering is lying, but think about it a minute. It really is lying because you're exaggerating. Exaggeration is a form of lying as well. A flattering mouth really works ruin to other people. We're not speaking the truth in love. Mm. The first chapter of Romans describes a very serious state. In verse 23, it says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped the, and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. You see, degeneration is inevitable when we substitute the truth of God for other things or beliefs we like better or are more convenient to our lifestyles that we're choosing. A real key verse for today, I want to read it for you. It, it will help us to have some personal examination in our lives in regard to lying. Ephesians 4, verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. You see, when we become Christians, we put off that old nature that lies as their native tongue, and we put on the new nature that speaks truthfully. And this idea of being all members of one body, so we want to represent the body of Christ and display Christ. Maybe we need to talk a little bit about why we lie. That's a great thing to do. We'll continue with that with Beverly Canaris, my guest. We're talking about lying and why people feel like they need to lie. We'll be right back with lots more. She taught Bible study fellowship for 30 plus years, and now we're studying God's word today and talking about lying, which is the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And what is the motivation for lying? Why do we lie? That's a really good question. Um, First of all, I think first and foremost is we lie to save face. Somehow saying that lie just is going to make us, we think, look better. Or we lie because we don't want to offend somebody. Uh, We can lie to get control of what we want to win. Um, We lie to build ourselves up to look good and help us have success. We can lie in in covering for other people. You know, honey, tell that person that I I can't come to the phone right now. I'm too busy, you Mm -hmm. know, or something like that. Um, It's a way to hurt others, lying about them. We lie to rationalize our sin. We can lie to point uh, to the point of believing our own lives, and I have actually own lies. Uh, I have actually known someone like this. The truth totally escaped them. Um, their conscience was really numb to the sin, and they they had no clue what truth was anymore. They were so prone to lying. Also, we can lie to ourselves. This is really dangerous. We can say, oh, that's no big deal, or God understands, or it could be much worse. They deserve this. I'm not guilty, you know, of whatever. God understands. Uh, This will not hurt anyone. So all these different ways we can rationalize lying. Now, lying can take a lot of different forms as well. Sometimes it's very sneaky where it's happening in our lives. Half-truth. Little white lies, 
Is there such a thing? No, there's lying. <laughs> and then there's truth. All right. There's exaggerations. That's a form of lying. Mm-hmm. There's convenient lies. There's spreading lies by just repeating them. You may not think you're guilty, but by repeating them, you are spreading lies. Gossip. You don't know if it's true or not. It might all be lies. Business compromise. Uh, sorry, I didn't get your message. Right? Yeah, uh, I think that email must have got into my junk folder. Yeah, I didn't yeah, see it for Yeah, a there week. you go. Oh, there's that. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. the old junk folder one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, oh, I just got <laughs> back too much cash. Yay me. They charge way too much anyway. Or I'm just bending the truth a little. How about our hypocrisy? Did you know hypocrisy is living a lie, trying to appear better than we really are? So I wonder, listeners, I'm asking myself too, where are you tempted to lie? Is it in relationships? If you're lying in your relationships, you're going to break trust. In fact, lying is the opposite of trust. With your spouse, intimacy and love will be diminished. And in order to gain that back, if you've been lying, that trust requires time and consistent truthfulness. Lying is also going to harm our relationship with God. Lying is a sin, and sin is a wedge. If it's not confessed, then it will be forgiven. Of course, lying is not the unpardonable sin by any means. It can and should be forgiven. Uh, You may slip into it. It may be accidental, or it may be very, very intentional. So whatever it is, if you've done that, you can confess and to the Lord, and he can forgive and bring you back to a re- new commitment of truthfulness. And don't forget about those little people in your home that come into this world so capable of lying. Honey, did you do that? No. You know, of course, you know, she's got crayons all over her hands. Of course it was her. But then they see you lie, and they really have then their ticket to lie themselves. Now, in our home, we didn't do it perfectly, but in our home, when our kids got in trouble for something, if it also involved lying, the consequences were greater because we wanted them to know, yeah, you may have done a stupid thing, but we wanted them to know what we really value here is truthfulness. So what does honesty not mean? Um, Well, first of all, you don't have to share every thought. Phew, that's a relief, right? It doesn't mean that in, in extreme war situations that you don't that you you disobey the powers that be and you may be involved in lying in order to protect lives, like when people hid the Jews or when Pharaoh was killing all the Jewish babies, boys, and the midwives lied to save them. Mm-hmm. So almost a hundred percent of us though, Bill. We'll never be in that kind of a situation. We never will be. We tell the truth, trusting God to bless and protect when we do tell the truth. So our last question we want to ask ourselves today now is, how can we become people of truth? We really need some good skills here to help us not to fall into this very easy ditch of lying. Here's a principle I read when I was studying the topic of lying. It's a quote. The new birth is the starting point of a life of truthfulness. Let me say that again. A new birth is the starting point of a life of truthfulness. 
In the life without Christ, we are deceived that we are sinners in need of saving by Christ. But with receiving Christ as our Savior, we see our sin, we repent, turning around from believing lies to embracing God's truth and applying it to ourselves. Remember whose you are now, Christ. You belong to him, not the devil, the father of lies. God now living in you in the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's said in John 15, 26, that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth, truth. So when you are being guided and you're guided to lie, that's not the Holy Spirit. Second, consider the fallout from lying. It's not honoring God. It will hurt the name of Christ and his church. It will hurt the ones I love. It's not loving them at all. And I will not be trusted. And who wants to be a person that's not trusted? Third, value your relationships enough to be honest. Lies break relationships, eroding trust. Our communication must be based on truthfulness. Fourth, confess past lying to God and repair your relationships where lies have hurt them. And fifth, decide today and ask for God's help not to lie. Ask God to alert you at the slightest temptation to lie and beware of situations where you've lied before, where you know you can easily fall into that. Ask God to cause you to abhor lying and to be a person of integrity. A hypocrite, not a hypocrite, a person of integrity is the same all the way through. To be a person of truth, speaking the truth in love. And the sixth pointer for not for being people of truth, this is really the main point. Constantly keep your eyes on truth so you can recognize the lies. And that is God's word. Be in God's word every day and you will be able to discern the lies when they come your way. You know, when they train a jeweler how to recognize false diamonds and real diamonds, then what they do, they look at real diamonds all day long. They don't look at false ones, mm-hmm. and that's how they know. So that's how you're going to know lies from truth in society. Stay in God's Word. Mm-hmm. Bev, always a pleasure. You know, I think of even Corey Tenboom. I think when she was in Nazi-occupied Holland, I think she did lie to soldiers because um, she was hiding Jews in her home to protect them. Um, so maybe there's an occasion where you're going to prevent a horrible evil by not telling the truth. But I think those are pretty rare occasions. Very rare. And again, it's the authority. She was going against the authority. That's true. Because, uh, and because they were violating God, God's right. word. Right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Great study. Great um, talking about this. And thank you very much for being here today. Thanks, Bill. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, Reverend Chris Palmer is going to join me. We're going to have our little lesson in Greek. He's back for our Greek lesson. I can hardly wait. Be right back.
is time for Greek, and I love to study Greek, and I always enjoy it with Reverend Chris Palmer. He's founder and pastor of Light of Today Church in Novi, Michigan, and he's also founder of Chris Palmer Ministries. He's host of the extremely popular podcast, Greek for the Week. If you've not checked that out, you certainly should, because you will learn a lot of Greek that way. He's also written a new book, which I'm excited to say came out this summer, just uh, end of August, called Strange Scriptures, Deciphering 52 Weird, Bizarre, and Curious Verses from the New Testament. Chris is with me today for the whole half hour. We're going to learn some Greek. Chris, welcome. Hey, Bill. Good to be with you again, man. And uh, here we are. It's September. It is September, and that is so true. We're going to just do our best to uh, not pretend that summer's over, (laughs) because it certainly is. It's the hardest part of the year to say goodbye to summer and to usher in the fall and then the winter. So, but hey, what can we say? But yeah, I but, guess. Go ahead. No, Minnesota, Michigan. So that's why we kind of dread the winter a little bit. It is, and that is why I have the verse we're going to start with today. It's going to lift everybody up in the Midwest <laughs> I and love make it. them feel <laughs> happy despite the fact that winter is coming. All right, let's get to it. Shortest verse in the New Testament. Everybody typically thinks is what? What's the shortest verse? Well, right? we all think it's John. 1135, yep. Jesus wept. Jesus wept, right. Of course, that's a, that's the case if you're reading an English Bible. But okay. if you're not reading an English Bible, if you're reading a Greek Bible, there's a shorter verse than that. Really? And it's, it, there is, there is, because now we're talking about words, we're talking two words, but then we talk about how much letters are in the words. And 1 Thessalonians 5.16 actually beats Jesus wept. And the verse is a short but powerful verse, and it says... Rejoice always, First Thessalonians five sixteen. So, if anybody is listening today, and you want to do your memory verse for the day or the week, this is an easy one. Rejoice always. Now, it really is fascinating in the Greek to consider this because the Apostle Paul is talking to the church in Thessalonica, and here they are having a problem. They're, they're thinking they missed the Perusia or the coming of Christ. And, you know, a lot's going on around them, and they're, they're in a, a world where there's idolatry. And you're starting to see inklings of social ostracization, persecution that's taking place. This, this is Paul's encouragement and advice to them is to rejoice always. Now, this is an imperative command. I mean, it comes off pretty strong. It's like you don't have an option. You need to do this. It's in the present tense. So the force of the word Bill, is that it's a continual rejoicing. It's, it's a decision to rejoice. We're going to rejoice on Monday through Friday, Saturday and Sunday. But really the way I say it is that the, the Christian life is an ongoing experience with joy. And, you know, as a theologian or even somebody who has lived the Christian life for 25 years, you can really lose touch with having joy because you become inundated with the problems of life, or you become so full of theology and books that you really forget that the moment the joy is gone from your Christian walk, you're going to find defeat. You're going to find how the enemy prods you and destroys the essence of being a Christian. And this is what that verse is saying. Now, the interesting part about this is that the root word for joy, which is chara, happens to be the root word for a, or I should say the word joy, chara, happens to be the root word for a lot of the most fundamental Christian values that we have. For instance, the word for grace, which is the essence of our walk with God. I mean, this is where it all starts, is grace. It's 
by grace through faith, right? Mm-hmm. The root word for grace, the word is charis, and the root word is char, which is joy. Mm. So forgive, karizomai, has the word char or joy in it. Spiritual gifts, charisma, has the word char in it or joy. And give thanks, ekersteo, has the word char in it. So, so what I always say is that joy is at the center of our Christian walk, and it should be in everything that we do. We should give thanks with joy. We should pray for the sick and and function um, in the gifts of the Spirit with joy. We should forgive our enemies with joy. We should enter into grace with joy. And basically, essentially, everything we do for the Christian life has to have joy at the center of it. And, And that includes living our lives in the wintertime. We should do it with joy. Um. I love what you just said, Chris, and I'm just, uh, really, and I'm thinking to myself, how good am I doing it, applying these in my everyday life? Because I love to study God's Word, and then I always want to take it and apply it to my life. And now I'm asking myself out loud on the radio, how am I doing at applying it in my life? And I would say, um, I'm probably not batting the greatest. (laughs) I think that... I think me and you are in that same boat, whatever that boat's called, the SS. We need more joy, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and that and, and that is such a challenge. I mean, it, we look at this first, and we, we just kind of go right over it. Yeah, 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 you know, rejoice always. And But I don't think it's really saying that, you know, I mean, it, it is saying in a sense we should always rejoice. But I think it's, it, it's not an action, but it's a state of being that there should be – we should maintain this – sense of joy about the things that we do. I mean, there may be somebody who's listening to this call at the moment, and they're, they're serving in their church, and they're not so joyful about it, and, or they're, they're in a marriage. They're not, not joyful about their marriage anymore, or they're, they're a mother of kids that are in high school, teenagers. They're not joyful about it. These are the times that Paul would tell you, take a step back, practice that pause, and really think about what it is that you have to give God thanks for and how you can be joyful about that thing that life is calling you to, or you're called to by God to, to serve in life. Um, and then that's where you, you go to the spirit and he infuses you with his joy or he refreshes you with his joy to, to do those things. Um, you know, for instance, somebody who's at the moment working on my doctorate, um, there's constantly times where I don't want to go to the computer and do footnotes or look up stuff and research, but it's what God, it's the post God has called me to. And mm-hmm. so there has, there's, a, there's an effort on my part to say, Lord, you called me to this and I can be joyful about it, but I need your help to do that. So help me, Holy Spirit, to be joyful about this. And you know something, when that joy is refreshed, it really makes everything so much easier and yeah. so much more worthwhile. Chris, I love that you, you know? talk about a joy that needs refreshing. Is it Sometimes more than an attitude, and joy should really be a part of our identity. I think you're absolutely right in saying that. I think that it is absolutely part of our identity. And our identity is really based on understanding who we are in Christ. And I think that identity also has to do with the infilling of the Spirit. I mean, there's that the Spirit of God is who has has filled us as a result of being saved. And so that relationship with the Spirit and that knowing who we are in Christ um, 
is what causes us to have joy. And there's ways that we refresh it, being around other Christians, entering into conversation about Christ and what he's done, our prayer times, um, thinking at a deeper level about Christ, meditating, giving reflection to those things. Those are all ways to reinforce our, our, our identity and then live that out through our emotions, which looks as though it's an attitude, if that mm-hmm. makes sense, Bill. It does. And Chris, there's some um, listening for sure that when Sunday night rolls around, they have that little wave of dread because the weekend's mm-hmm. over and they have to go back to work on Monday. And Absolutely. so how do we have that, how do we apply that joy to say, you know, work is something God has ordained. It's a gift. It is, yeah. I'm going to treat uh, work tomorrow as an act of worship to him. And yeah. how do we have those, those moments where it turns from that little dread into something that we can anticipate with joy? Yeah, I think that it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a real thing. I've, I know how that feels. I would say there are a number of ways. Um, number one, I think very practically you can count your blessings and count what God has done in your life. Uh, number two is I think prayer is effective in the sense of it gets prayer gets us away from ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when we are depressed, a lot of times it has a lot to do with we're focused on ourselves. Um, selfishness brings us into a place of depression. We're never meant to serve ourselves. And so when we're focused on it, usually when we're depressed about going to our job, you know, we have self-serving thoughts like, oh, I hate my job. I'm, I'm better than this job. Oh, <laughs> I, I didn't go to school for this job. Mm-hmm. And you're so, I don't think it's a job at that point that's depressing. I really think it's that your thoughts are focused on yourself. When you place your thoughts on God, joy comes as a result of that. Does that make sense? No, it does. makes a lot of sense. So, so uh, Chris, if I can just say in your book, Strange scriptures, deciphering 52 weird, bizarre, and other curious verses from the New Testament. This might tie into our conversation today. And um, number 11 uh, in your book is obsessed with being busy. Yes. You know, you do return to work on Monday, and we start that whole busy cycle again. And how you doing? Well, I'm busy. And I always think, well, everyone's busy. Kind of an odd answer. But what about being obsessed with being busy? Yeah, so this is really the American way of life. I mean, one of the things that I start with this, and I, I say is how the American culture values business, right? So there was a, a survey taken about how people like to flood their social media posts and show everyone that they're they're just they're pressed for time. You know, people may say, "Oh, I wish I had time for vacation," or "Our, our business is growing faster than we can scale," or you know, things, things of that nature. Um, we we got to keep up the man. Everybody wants you to know that I just got more going on than, than, than I have time for. And the Harvard Business Review did a study about this, and they found out that, according to the research, those who use online grocery shopping delivery services are perceived now to have a, so, a higher social status than all of us peasants that go <laughs> to the grocery store and use a self-checkout. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of, or that study discovered that people that use a hands-free Bluetooth headset, those people are regarded as more important than ones, okay, who don't wear headphones or wearing headphones. So it's mm-hmm. like, I got the Bluetooth in my ear, I'm using Instacart, I'm busy. And, and I say in the book, that's extremely dangerous. And that's dangerous because in, in um, Luke chapter 17, Jesus tells those that are listening to him that just in the days of Noah, so it will be during the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And he says they're eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And so Jesus prophesying at one level 
the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD. But in another level, I think he's, he's, he's also predicting his return. And when he returns, he's saying that life is going to be going on as normal. Marriage is normal. Eating is normal. Drinking is normal. Okay, you can add anything in there. Golf, sports, whatever you want. Everybody's just going to be doing their own thing. And I think we miss it sometimes with our end time eschatology where we say like, hey, maybe the sign of the end times are things that are happening that aren't normal. Like, you know, we see a meteor approaching the earth that just misses it or, you know, these types of anomalies uh, anomalies or cataclysmic things. I don't, I think those, that kind of misses the point what Jesus is saying. I think he's saying that people just aren't going to be paying attention to Christ or giving thought to their walk with God and their importance of, of maintaining that fellowship with Christ and because they're busy. And th- that's the thing that destroys our relationship uh, in a sense, our fellowship, I should say, with Christ is we just don't have time for church. You know, maybe we go twice a month. We need to go four or five times a month. You know, and, and these things Jesus is really telling you to be careful about. And as Americans who value, you know, a hard work ethic, um, we particularly need to be paying attention to this because it's a sin that Americans particularly deal with. Mm-hmm. We're talking to. Uh... Pastor Chris Palmer, he's written a book called Strange Scriptures, deciphering 52 weird, bizarre, and curious verses from the New Testament. We're learning a little bit of Greek. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll learn some more Greek. Chris Palmer, we're learning some Greek. If you just joined us uh, in the first part, we were talking about the shortest verse in Scripture, which is not John 11.35, according to Chris. In the Greek, it's 1 Thessalonians 5.16. And I was trying to practice my Greek during the break. And uh, I don't think I said that right. How'd I do, Chris? You did okay, Bill. You did okay. Okay, give it to me. Give it to me correctly. Okay, what verse are you coming from? Uh, what, what verse are you yeah, coming from? Yeah, uh, First Thess five sixteen. Okay, so you kind of had it right. It depends on rejoice, you know, isn't it? Yeah, the word yeah, rejoice. It is. Rejo- it, it, it's rejoice. It just depends on where it's at. Now it's inflecting. What word it's next? But hero would be good. It, it, the e, the epsilon, the yoda, kind of made like the a, like an eight hero. But I have Greek friends who live in the Mediterranean that are constantly. You know, judging my pronunciation, they told me you're never going to have a Greek tongue, so just accept it. So I've, okay. I've accepted defeat in this regard. <laughs> okay. So, and you talked about Yoda. Yeah. Well, I didn't think you'd be bringing Star Wars into this thing. What? <laughs> I'm very confused by all of this, Chris. Just so you know. <laughs> it's okay. You, if you're confused, I'm twice as confused. I still don't. <laughs> you know, it still eludes me. Okay. So, um, how would we say uh, rejoice again in Greek? So hero, how, hero, hero. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And are we like spell, a hero? But, like a hero, but we're having a little bit of roll in the front side, huh? Yeah, you know, and, and you probably want to roll that 
it, it looks like a P, but it's really a rho. That letter, it, it kind of looks like a P in English, but it's, it's it makes the R sound, and it's called a rho. And you know, I, I just get lazy. I never want to really roll that R. And yeah, I'm a lazy speaker as it is. But my mom always <laughs> tells me I mumble, so I just when it comes to pronunciation, I'd rather <laughs> leave it to someone else. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's dig into uh, some more Greek here. Something out of yeah. your book, Strange Scriptures. Well, yeah, so let's, you know what, let me talk about, I want to move to kind of talk about this in particular. I don't think we've talked about Thomas on the show. And I was was talking to Rosie today. I said, this is probably one thing I want to introduce is this idea of Thomas. Now, I think in the show we've talked about doubt before. One of the things I get as as a pastor and people say is, oh, they doubt a lot. And and they kind of really get down on themselves for doubting. And I think there was a... a survey taken by Barna where it said like 60% of people that are in church today, I mean, not, I mean, in church today have, have significant, significant doubts about, about whatever in, in Christendom. And, you know, basically like 30% have really worked through those doubts. And so there's like this high percentage of people that are, that you see at any given time raising their hands and worshiping God. Now we've talked about the beginning of Luke's account and how Theophilus works through his doubt. But there's another picture we're given in, in the book of John about um, one in particular who doubts, and that is um, Thomas. Now, Thomas, we all call him Thomas the Doubter. He's just, you know, he kind of gets this, he gets this bad name. I think that's unfair to him. I think he does doubt, but I don't necessarily think it's as pejorative as we make it to be. Um, and that's because in, in the beginning, what I always teach my students is, is don't just, read scripture, you know, verse by verse. And I think I've said this on the show, but we've been together so long ago. I don't know what I've said and what I haven't said on this show. So we're just going to go for it anyway. Um, that's okay with you. Even if you're repeating um, yourself, Chris, I promise uh, people love hearing <laughs> stuff a second time. I know I do because I never learned stuff the first time through anyway. <laughs> okay. That's relieving. <laughs> so um, the beginning of the book of John, it says that uh, you know, you see, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The same with the beginning. Uh, same with in the beginning, God. Okay, so you have this affirmation that Jesus is God, and that's and that's something we lose sight of by the time we get to John chapter twenty, when we see that Thomas is you know going to doubt, and Thomas in John chapter twenty, and verse number uh, twenty-eight, in my opinion, makes one of the most profound statements in the word of God, and says in Greek, hokurios mu, kai hotheos mu, which is my Lord and my God. Now, in the Greek, this is a very, very explicit statement. He doesn't just call him hokurios, which would be like the Old Testament word that was used in the Septuagint for, for affirming the deity of God. But he also calls them my God, Hotheo. So he uses both words that would have been very significant for a Greek speaker to say that Jesus is in fact God. And I don't like how, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses would say that Jesus never claims that he's God. The very fact that John, excuse me, that Thomas is there affirming that he's God is all all the account that we need and that Christ is receiving that from John testifies of that. But that, but that's even more interesting when you consider the fact that prior to him, ha- so when when Thomas says this, it's like a heroic statement. It's like a very heroic statement. 
it's it's a it's a powerful statement. We should give him more credit for coming to this, especially in light of the fact that he did doubt. And and you go back to verse number twenty four. I mean, a lot is going on in John twenty twenty four twenty eight. So you see in verse twenty four, if you back up a little bit, it says now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them. This is extremely powerful. He's not he's not with the disciples, and you you don't know where he's at. Is he fishing? Is he sleeping? Is he pouting under a tree somewhere? Where is he at? It doesn't matter. He's just not with them. And they come back to, the disciples come to him and say, well, we've seen the Lord. And he says, well, you know, I, I don't believe. And, you know, he goes through this whole entire, you know, litany of, of what he's what he's done. I think that the scripture is really smart. John was really smart about why he puts this in here. Okay, because John shows Thomas there the following Sunday. And that's really interesting because um, the fact that he wasn't there and then the fact that he's there, that really is powerful. Mm. That kind of shows the psychological state of Thomas. He's wrestling. You know, it's not like he just refuses to believe. He's like, I'm going to give this another chance. I'm going to give this another try. And I always say when I teach this, this really speaks to all of us, doesn't it? There are times where we're not there, but we still show up there. And there's times where we'd rather not be there because we've been disappointed or been upset or been, we've had questions, but we're still there. We do show up again. And, and, and the biggest takeaway from this is the fact that Jesus shows Thomas compassion. He shows Thomas empathy. And he gives Thomas, doesn't answer all his questions for him, by the way. But he gives Thomas exactly what it is that he needs to believe that he's the Christ. And Thomas comes away with this, my Lord and my God. And so Jesus treats Thomas's doubt as something that's very legitimate. And he gives Thomas in his doubt an invitation to know him more profoundly. Mm-hmm. What, I always say, what I say to people is, is don't look at your doubts as, a, as something negative. Look at your doubts. Okay, let me, I tell this story, and I know I'm, I'm going on and on and on, but I tell this story about when I was in Paris in 2014. And I, had, I was by myself, I was, had one day, and I planned everything out that I was going to see. And I spent morning to the evening just going from here and here and here and here and here because I want to see the culture, I want to see this, I want to see that. And I felt like I needed, I was in control of all of this. I needed to see everything. And then suddenly, Bill, I had... I, I went, you know, really busy. Then I had a rock in my shoe, and I I was forced to stop my busyness. And when I took my shoes off, I was getting the rock out. I saw people dancing, people drinking wine, people enjoying themselves. And I would have missed that opportunity <laughs> if I hadn't stopped. Mm-hmm. And doubting gets us to stop sometimes and to see something we would not have seen if we wouldn't have doubted in the first place. That's exactly what's going on in Thomas's life. Mm, yeah. It gets us to hit pause a little bit, doesn't it? Gets us to hit pause and discover something about our faith that we wouldn't have otherwise discovered if we hadn't doubted in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I love- and that's exactly, that's what Thomas is experiencing. He sees something about Christ, he, and, and then Thomas goes on to be this disciple in India who brings the gospel to the subcontinent, and I, it came out of his doubt. You know, so I think that really talks, speaks to people like you and I who doubt what can come forth from that doubt. It's, I'm not saying doubting is like the goal, but doubting can be used by God just like anything else. 
Yeah, I always appreciate people with a, a healthy dose of curiosity, skepticism. Uh, I want more information. Everything Jesus does is so invitational. So why should uh, other people not be treated the same way? You're, you're invitational. You've got questions. That's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, if we, when, when people come to us, if there's pastors listening or, or parents or others listening and they say, well, I, I have someone that's dealing with significant doubt in their life. Well, first of all, we need to stop acting like we've never been there before. Right. Okay. And second of all, I think we need to encourage people who are doubting that this isn't a disqualifier for you. This is an invitation to discover something. And you know what? We're in the microwave culture. We want everything on time mm-hmm. and, and quick. But that doubt may take, you know, that, that, that question, that curiosity, as you say, may take some time to discover. But God invites us in our doubts to know him better. So true. To know him deeper. So true. Chris, thank you so much for the Greek for the week. I've enjoyed it. Always nice talking to you. Bill, thanks for everything, my friend. Yep. Have a great uh, week. Talk to you later. God bless you. Thank you hey, so God. much. Chris Palmer's been my guest. His book is Strange Scriptures, Deciphering 52 Weird, Bizarre, and Curious Verses from the New Testament. That's all of our show for the day. Thank you so much for an amazing fall share last week. We're still uh, just so full. Our hearts are so full for everything you did. I hope you have a great night. I look forward to spending time with you tomorrow. See you soon. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.